0: Gina Della from Pella. And let me tell you, 555 is back. Get up to five years, no interest, five months, no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. See PellaWI.com.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Well, Mike Spalding, I asked you to stick around, give you a chance to prove that you are, in fact, smarter than Jeff Wagner.
1: I've been sweating since. So. Okay,
2: well, here, here <laughs> See, here, here's the deal. Once a month... Um, I, uh, I, my wife and I, we, we play in like this trivia contest mm-hmm. that, you know, a place we go and, and, and we have a, there's a couple other couples that join us. So last night was the trivia contest for September and the team I am on we, we end up winning maybe once every every two times or so. We, we actually okay, have a pretty, pretty good record. Good, yeah. we're, we're pretty That's solid good. about that. Well, last night we did not win. Last night we ended up coming in third. It was close, but we ended up coming in third. And, and I'm blaming myself because there were two questions. And these were, were U.S. geography questions that I... I should I I am convinced I should have known, but I did not. So All that, right. if these were and if, if we would have gotten these questions right we we would have won. if we would have gotten either one of these questions right, we would have won. All right. So I thought I would give you a chance, and we have not discussed this beforehand, yep. to prove that, you know, you could have pulled the team through when I failed yesterday. Okay? All right. All right, here's the first here's the first question. All right. Nevada, state of Nevada, mm-hmm. the largest city in the state of Nevada is Las Vegas. What is the second largest city in the state of Nevada? Oh, is it? Oh, is it off the beaten path? Uh, you don't get clues. You know? <laughs> that's me thinking a lot. Uh, Carson, Carson City? No, it would not. See, I, I went with Reno because I thought that was kind of the uh, Carson City is the capital. Yeah, I, I and it, it's not Carson City. I went with Reno because I thought, okay, well, that's it. It's Henderson, which is. You're looking at me blank. Henderson is, is to the south of Las Vegas. So you could have sat there and guessed all day, and you would yeah, have no, not gotten I nev- Henderson. Yeah, that would have been I, very low on the it, list. It did, no, we are actually, the debate at the table was, was it Reno or was it Carson City? And it wouldn't have mattered because we, we wasted all the time because it was Henderson, which is it's sort of a bedroom community just to the south of Las Vegas. And so that's the second largest. Okay, so we, we blew that one. All right. Yeah, we, would have been I, a, we still would have lost. I didn't either. get that. Okay, so here's the, the second question. This was like the final question. Um, and, and so this was really a chance to, to, to show glory. All right. Um, there are two states in the country that do not have a city in excess where the population's in excess of fifty thousand. So there's two states <clears throat> where there's no city with more than fifty thousand people. What are those two states? Is one of them Rhode Island? Well, okay, yeah, you gotta come up with two. So what would what would your two be? Rhode Island's one, and I'm going to go with North Dakota. Okay, well, you would be wrong on both accounts. No. <laughs> <laughs> How? <Okay>. Come on, <laughs> North Dakota. Well, well, Oh, no, North Dakota. Uh, well, first of all, Rhode Island has Providence. You know, and Providence is a relatively big city. So, but it's, it's not Rhode Island. No, North Dakota actually, while there's not a lot of people in North Dakota, North Dakota is a couple, of Bismarck, North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota. No, so it's not North Dakota. Um, I was, I was kind of thinking, I was wondering, I was trying to figure out Montana, for example, but Montana, by the way, has cities bigger than 50,000. Alaska has cities bigger than 50,000. Nope. The two cities, the two states that do not have cities do not have a city larger than 50,000, are Vermont. That was my second guess. Vermont. I was, yeah, I was kind of debating about like uh. Burlington, Vermont and stuff. And the second one, I would have, my friend Patty sitting at the table, she threw out this state and the rest of us just dismissed. No, I shouldn't say the rest of us. I dismissed that. It. It's, oh no, there's got to be, the, and, and it turned out to be uh, correct. So I apologize to Patty for just kind of like dismissing this out of hand. West Virginia. Really, West Virginia does not have a city population larger than fifty thousand. How do they factor in universities? Because you wouldn't you think Morgantown would have more than fifty thousand? No, I get, maybe not. Okay, I don't know. I I don't know, but it's it, it's West Virginia and it's Vermont. I I mean, I was I was thinking. I I mean, I was thinking Montana. I was thinking my, Wyoming. I was thinking. Maine, v- Vermont was on the list. Delaware. Um, but Delaware has – it's a very small state, but there's one, there's one big city in Delaware. But, um, yeah, so I ended up – well, good. I, I In the category of Misery Loves Company, if you were at our <laughs> table, you would not have been able to help me won. last night. Nope, nope. nope. Second place, no. Nope. Nope. Yeah. But it was kind of this interesting – you think you know all this kind of stuff, and then you, you sit there and you're just kind of shooting blindly. But so that, that is the trivia when you go home tonight. You know, if you want to test gonna- that with some of your friends, say two states – that do not have a population of lar- – a city that has a population of larger than 50,000. And you know what? I can bring it up really naturally <laughs> now because I know it now, so I'll just be able to slip it in there. And Exactly. Yeah, right, and okay. Look at the big brain on Mike <laughs> Spaulding. Okay, well, that works. Well, anyways, okay, that was, that was the, the – I, I had a chance at greatness. Either one of those – either one of those answers, <clears throat> we would have won again, but I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have either one. But there's always next – Month. You see, all these people are sitting there with their ideas. They're going, well, North Dakota, Alaska? No, no, that's not at Wyoming and Maine. Nope, nope. It is Vermont and West Virginia. And like I say, my friend Patty, she said, it, it's 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 West Virginia. No, no, that can't be. And she didn't feel confident enough to argue with us, but that was the case. Uh, all right, yesterday afternoon, you thought the Brewers were going to slap the win, stop the uh, losing streak. As a matter of fact, I, I have to I tease my, my very dear friends, John and Mary, were at the game. And when the Brewers took the five Nothing lead. I sent them both a text saying, Hey, you guys are the good luck charms. You have to go to the rest of the games. And Mary sent me a text back saying, Yeah, I, I feel it. This is going to be a win. Now, that feeling might have been something, Mary, but it was not a win. Tough tough loss for the brewers do not worry do not jump off the bandwagon they are they're going to be just fine and two weeks from now nobody's going to be worried about you know did they lose a couple games to the cardinals two weeks from now we're going to be concentrating on are the brewers going to be able to beat the atlanta braves in the first round of the playoffs and then knock off whoever it is that goes on so do not panic everything will be okay interesting story in the journal Sentinel today, which underscores this idea that, well, if you wanted to be charitable, you would say, sometimes the grass isn't always greener. If you wanted to be honest, you would say, you know, sometimes the electorate is dumb. I'll explain in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Boy. There are some alarmists in our audience here. So, I I mean, look, the brewers, their magic number is three. And it's been stuck there for a while. I understand they've lost five games in a row and there's been a couple tough losses that have been in there, but they still won 98 month games during the, the year. And any combination of three Brewers wins and three Cardinals losses equaling three, you know, any combination of that, once they get there, they've won the division. They're going to win the division. They're what, like seven and a half, eight games a- ahead. All right. So somebody texts me and says, well, Jeff, don't forget that six of the Brewers remaining Nine games are against the Cardinals and the Dodgers, whereas all remaining 10 games, the Cardinals are against the Brewers and the Cubs. Clinching is not guaranteed. To which my response was, the Brewers are not going to go two and seven in their remaining nine games, and St. Louis isn't going to win all 10. And by the way, if St. Louis does win their next 10 games, which would mean they'd have a winning streak, I believe, of 22 games, well, then, then they deserve all the good things that, that come. But, uh, you know, for, for everybody who's looking and say, oh, there, there's no way the Brewers are going to do this. Well, let me channel out Aaron Rodgers for a minute. Relax. <laughs> it's it, it's going to be fine. Worry about you know what happens in the playoffs and worry about whether they're they're going into the playoffs with no momentum and things like that. Those are I guess fair concerns. Wonder you know worry about whether or not their lack of hitting over the last couple games you know translates into a momentary blip or or maybe they were overperforming over the balance of the year. But the, the Brewers are going to be just fine when it comes to winning the Central Division title. And again, maybe in a week and a half. Things will be completely different. Maybe the brewers will go on, and maybe they will end up losing, you know, 10, 12 games in a row. Really don't think that that's going to be the case. All right. Um, The grass is not always greener, and sometimes the electorate just gets it wrong. And there's a classic example of that playing out in the city of Milwaukee. Grant Langley was the Milwaukee city attorney. And he'd he been the city attorney for like 30-some years. I, I knew him, I know Grant a, a little bit. He was a very, very solid guy. He um, was not particularly political, and I thought, he always thought he did a good job of running a professional office. And that the Milwaukee City Attorney's Office represents the city of Milwaukee in litigation when the city of Milwaukee gets sued. When it comes to, like, when people fight parking tickets or when people fight uh, municipal citations, you know, his office, you know, represents the city and things like that. And and it's an important job, and there's a lot of people that work in the city attorney's office. Um Grant Langley was a very, very professional administrator. And like I say, he was... It's an elected position, but he was pretty much apolitical. I've I've always kind of felt that way. He just, if you knew his politics... Personally, you you wouldn't have been able to tell that from the way he ran the city attorney's office. Now, he was there for a very long time, and before the last election, he he had been sending all these signals that he was ready to retire and and step down. And then at the last minute, he decided that, no, he was going to run for another four-year term. So he he had a couple challengers. One was a Milwaukee attorney named Vince Bobbitt, who had been in the city attorney's office, very, very well-known, good lawyer. Good, solid lawyer. The other guy that jumped into the race was a guy named Tierman Spencer. Now, Tierman Spencer was pretty much completely and totally unknown to a huge chunk of the Milwaukee legal community. No, nobody had ever really heard of of this guy. Um, his career included working as an engineer on on transportation infrastructure like railroads, got a degree from Madison, had a private practice that handled real estate and business cases. But he was not... He didn't have any experience. For example, it's not like he was an assistant city attorney. It's not like he was an assistant district attorney. He was just, I don't know, somebody that was in the community, but not particularly well known, not a high profile lawyer at all. He was, of course, um, he was a new face. He was also, let's be honest, he was black. And so, you know, you you have this, we have a city that has a degree of racial politics that are involved in this. And so when he ran, part of the campaign was gonna be, hey, if he wins, he's gonna be the first, you know, elected black city attorney in the city of Milwaukee, which which I, I, un- I understand diversity is important and those sort of things. So it's a three-way primary. Vince Bobbitt, who was somebody who had a lot of experience in municipal law and stuff, he gets knocked out in the primary. And it leaves Grant Langley to run against this Tierman Spencer. Well, okay, it was 2020. You can argue it's sort of a a change election or whatever. And and Tierman Spencer, this attorney with very, very little experience and nothing in his background to suggest that he was able to come in and and run like the Milwaukee City Attorney's Office. Nevertheless, he, because he's kind of this fresh face, he he gets elected. He gets elected overwhelmingly. He won um, like 60-40, just absolutely crushed, you know, grant Langley, um, um, 18,000 more votes than Langley, which is, you know, Langley was not a controversial city attorney at at all, but he'd been there forever. And so voters just decided, okay, the grass is always greener here. We're going to we're going to vote for the, the new guy. Well, again, demonstrating that the grass is not always greener and that sometimes voters really don't get it right. <laughs> Tierman has been an absolute and total disaster with a capital D. Um, here, here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it today, and Mike Spaulding was alluding to this. Um, in the 17 months that he has been in office, nearly two dozen staff members have bailed from the city attorney's office. 17 have come this year, five in 2020. That is a third of the assistant city attorney positions. All four deputies and the chief of staff also walking out the door were an IT staffer, the finance officer, and the agency's personnel officer. Now, look, on the one hand, Whenever you have a new administrator that comes in, it's not uncommon to have a little bit of turnover. You know, the, the the people that were like the the top managers for the former city attorney. It's not uncommon for the new guy to come in or new gal to come in and want to like elevate or bring in some of their own people, and and that's okay. So there's always going to be some turnover when you have a change, but this is is staggering. A third of the assistant city attorney's bailing is just stunning. And apparently what, what's happened is they're, they're talking about, well, it's not like, yeah, gee, I I got, I got demoted or whatever. They're talking about the operative phrase is this toxic work environment where the agency, now, again, Grant Langley was a guy who just, he ran the office on merit. He was a, a no no chaos kind of guy. These, these attorneys who are leaving are talking about how these highly coveted jobs, because they pay really well, they've got great benefits, they're, they're bailing on this, all these employees, because the agency has been turned into an entity ruled by fear and intimidation. A uh, toxic work environment is the phrase that they use. You've got, you know, people saying, you know, we're even afraid to talk, speak out because we're afraid that this Spencer is going to use his power to try to retaliate against us. They, they say he's looking to be mayor, um, which, you know, he, he's not qualified to be city attorney. It would be a complete disaster. But you just look at this story. And again, there's always some turnover and you're always going to have a certain percentage of disgruntled People, particularly when you're talking about law firms, but to have this kind of turnover in an office where you have essentially career civil servants who you know make their living and a good living, you know, working under the radar to have one after another, after another, after another, you know, bailing on the place tells you how bad it really is. And there's all sorts of other allegations out there about sexual harassment and things of the like. But it's just if you were to look up the term dysfunctional in the dictionary, you would see a picture of the current Milwaukee city attorney and the city attorney's office. And it's again, it's really it's too bad. But I said this at the time, and it's really turned out to be true. The voters in April of 2020 in Milwaukee kind of had this giant hissy fist where it's like, OK, well, you know, we're, we're going to for whatever reasons, we're going to toss out the guy that's been doing a really solid job for the last 3 decades and we're going to we're going to bring in somebody new. Well, by all stretches of imagination it looks like the guy that they brought in that that somebody new really isn't by any any objective measure up to the job. So, sometimes the grass isn't always greener and sometimes the electorate just doesn't get it right. And this is example A. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Melissa Barkley, you will be glad to know this. All right, the Oregon Department of Health has now waded in. Now, we're we're not far be it from me to suggest that the government wants to control too many aspects of people's life. But at the start of the pandemic, the Oregon Department of Health, all right, they came out with this um, message saying that essentially, well, you know, you are your safest sex partner and they include... <laughs> And that, this is, well, this, is okay, this is the government yes. telling you that. <laughs> and they encouraged people to avoid kissing on dates. I remember that kissing yes. can easily pass COVID-19. Avoid kissing anyone who is not part of your small circle of close contacts. So that was the that was the <laughs> that, you know,
3: sound advice. That, okay, that, okay. that was the
2: advice. Do, do not do not go out <laughs> and kiss. All right, which probably, you know, makes, you know, meeting new people a little bit difficult. Well, you'll be glad to know that now, after a year and a half of saying, don't kiss, and that you are your own safest partner, they've now modified it a little bit. They have now changed this, and they now say that it's okay to kiss as long as you have both been vaccinated.
3: Okay, well, as long as they're saying it's okay, then, Right,
2: so that's it. So, all right, so you're out on that first date. And you know you're you're at that point where do I kiss him good night? Do I kiss her good night or right. whatever? Now it's like okay, as, are you as vaccinated? Long, right, as long as, long as <laughs> and right as long as you've got your your vaccination that's card, right. <laughs> the Oregon Department of Health says it's okay.
0: Dating in Oregon has has changed forever.
2: <laughs> it, it has changed. Well, at least it's changed for a while. But that so that's good news. So if you're dating in Oregon okay you now know it's okay to kiss as long as you've got that vaccination well, card
0: i'm glad I'm, I'm not living in oregon so that's good but right and it's, <laughs> it's
2: and, I'm, and i'm glad i've got the government here mm. to help me with those yes. sort of things
1: welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj uh,
2: This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank is Miller Mobility. Miller Mobility is your go-to for the best in stair lifts, scooters, ramps, lift chairs, and power recliners. Give them a call. They're really good people. 262-549-4900. And don't forget to check out their new showroom, 36336 North Summit Village Way in Oconomowoc. Miller Mobility, now you can. All right. I, I was intrigued by this because th- this is a story that I, 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 I've talked about it a couple times, but nobody else seems to be discussing it. But it looks to me like we are, we are heading for a, a train wreck. Regardless of how you feel about vaccination mandates, and I happen to be somebody who believes that people should get vaccinated, but as a general rule, I'm against mandates. There, there's always a real-world implication to decisions that, that people make. And it's one thing to sit in a CEO boardroom or to sit in, you know, uh, the Oval Office in Washington, D.C., and say, okay, we're going to require people to mandate that people get vaccinated. And that all sounds well and good, but then there's the concept of how does this play out in in the real world? Now, many medical facilities and nursing homes have already imposed these mandates. They say, okay, if you are not fully vaccinated by October 15th or November 1st or whatever, we're going to consider you to have voluntarily." resign, which is a fancy way of saying they're firing. You. All right, you're, you're going to be gone. All right, I, I get it. I understand where they're coming from. But as we have talked about before, the, the question becomes, okay, wh- what is the real world effect of this? And, and we've, we've run the numbers before. For example, for nursing homes and assisted living facilities, they estimate right now that one out of four nursing home assisted living facility jobs is currently vac- vacant. That, that's the that's the deal. Now, they also estimate that about 40 percent of nursing home assisted living facility workers are currently not vaccinated. So you've got one out of four jobs that are already open that they can't fill. What's my again? My point has been what, what's going to happen when October 15th or November 1st rolls around? And, and let's say of those 40 percent of workers who aren't vaccinated. All right. And 20 percent now still aren't. So are, are you going to get rid of 20 percent of your remaining workforce? You're going to fire them. And then what, how are you going to stay open? How are you going to keep the doors open? How many hours overtime can you expect the remaining people to work? Well, the the same thing is playing out in the medical community, because for whatever reasons, there are Particularly, a lot of healthcare professionals, like nurses, who have decided they don't want to get vaccinated. Now, I, I can't tell you why they want it; don't want to get vaccinated, but they've made that decision. There is already an incredible nursing shortage. I know some hospitals in this area which are essentially paying double time to get nurses to you know work extra shifts and things like that because they are already dramatically understaffed. I know. I know people who work in the nursing industry around here, and they are deathly afraid of what's going to happen over the course of the next month because they know that there are a lot of nurses who have just decided that they're they're not going to get vaccinated, and what that means is they're if they're eligible to retire, they're going to retire, or else they're going to just leave and try to find a job somewhere else or or whatever. But they're they're making that decision because for whatever reason they've decided they don't want to get vaccinated. You might think that's a dumb decision, but that's the decision they're making. So they're they're leaving their jobs. Now into this wades the new governor of New York. Her name is Kathy Hochul. She replaced Cuomo. All right, now she. She has an order in place in New York saying healthcare workers must be vaccinated by September 27th or they will be replaced. And, and here's what, what she said earlier this week to all health care providers, doctors and nurses in particular who are vaccinated. I say thank you because you are keeping true to your oath to those who won't. We will be replacing people. Um we are sending out a call statewide. There are facilities that uh, for example don't have a worker shortage. We are confident that we will be able to find replacements. And she essentially says if you're a, if you're a healthcare worker, particularly a nurse, who decides not to get vaccinated, you're going to lose your job because you are in fact replaceable. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. They are replaceable. All right. Now, look, I, I understand that the general concept that none of us I- is irreplaceable. But at the same time, when you have a critical shortage right now, you can't find enough nurses to, to do what needs to be done. You cannot find enough people to staff uh, nursing homes or assisted living facilities. And you're already at a point where you're, you're stretched beyond thin. All right. Is it really true that? that, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. Anybody is replaceable. And again, I really don't want to argue about the merits of, of should they put in this order or not. I think the intriguing question is I, I, that the fact that so many folks don't realize that this is going to be a crisis. Apparently, I think a lot of these managers, or I think a lot of the talking heads, don't really think that people are going to leave. And all I am telling you, at least based on the numbers that i'm looking at but also anecdotally based on conversations that i'm having with friends or relatives or people who are working in the healthcare industry they are deathly afraid of this cuz they know a lot of people and and again is it is it 10% is it 20% is it 15% but when you're already dramatically understaffed and you lose another 10 or 15% for example of nurses that aren't easy to replace what what is going to happen overall with the quality of care 8556161 620 that's the acute mortgage talk and text line and and to for the governor of New York to say to these nurses well all right you know if if you leave it, it's no big deal because you are replaceable my question is where where are you going to get the people who who are you going to replace these nurses with to the governor of New York who suggests that the people working in nursing homes who, who might leave are replaceable, where are you going to get the people to do the cooking? Where are you going to get the people to scrub the floors? Where are you going to get the people to change the bed linens? Where are you going to get the people that are going to you know provide the, the services that the seniors need? I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a lot of nursing homes closed. You've already had the, and, and then where are people going to go? You've already had this story in upstate New York where they've already, at one hospital, had to close. A, um, had to close a maternity ward because you had a number of nurses that worked in the maternity ward who who left over this vaccine mandate. And it's great to say we're going to put in this vaccine mandate, but what what's the real-world consequence of this going to be? Let's start with Ann in Elkhorn. Hi, Ann. Hi, Jeff.
0: Um, I own 14 group homes in Wisconsin, and not one of I'm sorry. When we heard.
2: I'm sorry, Ann. Sorry, your, your cell phone cut out a little bit. So you own 14 group homes okay. in Wisconsin. Okay, so.
0: Right. One of my employees is replaceable. Um, we serve clients that would otherwise be in institutions, and we work really hard to keep them in the community. Um, we just attended the Wisconsin uh, Assisted Living Association Association convention last week, and one person there said that they did mandate the vaccine and lost 20 her staff. Okay. Um, there's no way we're going to do that.
2: Just because you, you don't have enough people right now to do the jobs, and if all of a sudden uh, 10%, 20% of your workforce on top of that decides to leave, you can't keep the doors open.
0: We literally we would be sending people who are doing well in the community back to Winnebago or Mendota or Northern Center, um institutions because if we were to do that we would lose staff so i'm not willing to do that to our clients or our staff
2: yeah and and if the government were to put in that mandate and say that you well for example i mean that's one of the things that's kicking around dc the idea if you have a hundred more employees and you don't have everybody vaccinated they're not going they're no longer going to allow you to receive medicaid or medicare payments and my guess is if you can't accept medicare or medicaid payments. There's no way that you can there's no way you can make it work to begin with.
0: Well, that's true. Um, We do have um, we do have more than 100 employees and we believe that most people should be vaccinated, but it should not be mandated. We will be giving our employees um, uh, exception form so that they can, you know, a religious mental right. or personal conviction exception um, we will give those to them
2: right but the bottom line is if you were forced to fire everybody who chose not to get vaccinated this would it would devastate your business
0: Absolutely. It would it would close programs and people that we serve would be back in hospitals.
2: Yep. Thanks for call. I appreciate it. This is the real world issue and and for the governor of New York to come out and say, well no nurses. All you nurses, you're 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 replaceable. Somebody just sent me a text saying, hey, a number of the hospital systems are, are already offering bonuses of like 10 grand signing bonuses to get nurses to stay in. I know, again, there's some health facilities that for, for nurses that pick up like extra shifts, they're offering like double time. That's, why do you think they're doing it? Well, they're doing it because they're, they're understaffed. You have nurses and other healthcare professionals as well, who are burned out after the last year and a half. They're they're already burned out. And for this idea that, okay, we're going to be able to, oh, all right, we're just going to be able to say to our existing workforce, who's already burned out and stretched to the limits, okay, we've just lost another 10 to 15% of our employees. We don't know where we're going to be able to replace them. So we're going to expect you now to work, you know, I don't know, 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week. I just, some will. But I I think this is a huge train wreck, and candidly, there's a degree of cluelessness that's out there about real world options and the governor of New York is expressing that when she says to nurses you're replaceable well tell me where you're going to find the replacements for people who say okay so we lose another 20% of the already understaffed nursing homes and assisted living facilities you guys if you leave you're replaceable tell me where those replacements are coming from they haven't been able to fill the jobs now how are you going to replace them moving forward now I don't have an easy answer to this but this is the problem with these mandates. When you put the mandates in without wondering what the real world consequences are, and we're already starting to see that, okay, we're closing maternity wards at places. We're, um, um, we're, we're closing other departments in order to put people into the emergency departments or whatever. It's a huge deal. And we need to, I think, figure out a better way than simply saying, well, we don't care if you leave because you're replaceable, because, candidly, there's not replacements out there.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: The hunt for brew October is on as the crew closes in on another NL Central title. Yes. They are closing in on it. Do not panic. They're not going to lose all the remaining games. Mr. Baseball, Bob Bucher calls Brewers Baseball right here on WTMJ. And if you live in southeast Wisconsin, you can also listen online on your phone and on Alexa. It's the Hunt for Brew October presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by Boucher Automotive. Here's another text on what we were talking about. Jeff, my wife is an activity supervisor for a nursing home and an assisted living facility. They are short RNs, CNAs and staff for the kitchen if they mandate this and they've already been told they are um the this hospital this, the place is already saying they're going to close because 20 percent of the remaining people have already made clear that they will not get vaccinated um so what's going to happen is they're all made, they're making arrangements to find all these people that are these residences and move them to another facility which is all well and good but what where are you going to end up sending them that see this is again it's the real world consequence and 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 this is beyond should people get vaccinated or shouldn't people get vaccinated. It's when you have areas where there is an incredible shortage of personnel already. And you recognize that by putting in these mandates, even if you think the mandate's a great idea, and even if you think that people in the health profession should get vaccinated, but the the effect of the mandate is to... I don't know, lose another 10 to 20 percent of the workforce, are you willing to live with the consequences of that? Which means closing down maternity wards, maybe closing down wings of hospitals, maybe closing down emergency rooms. And certainly when it comes to nursing homes and assisted living facilities, it means closing the doors certainly to new people, but also maybe closing them all together. So how are we going to handle that? And it's a situation that I don't think anybody really wants to address. But for the governor of New York to say to medical professionals, "Well, you're, you're, you're replaceable. Okay, well, good, good luck with that. Now, one of our longtime listeners, Jeff says, Jeff, you know, it it it's true that, you know, most people can be replaced, but you and Melissa can't. Well, so, <laughs> some people might tend to disagree with that, but I appreciate I appreciate the thought. The um we we've been told to follow the science, and I and I think that's I think that's fair. I, but I do believe that one of the reasons we are where we are with this pandemic is the fact that we've had conflicting health advice. And in some cases the conflicting health advice has come. Advice has come be, not because of a reaction to science, but more like a political, say, knee-jerk reaction. For example, I, I understand early on in the pandemic they said you don't need to wear masks, and then once we got to know more about the the virus three, four months later, and we figured out it was airborne, that they changed the mask recommendation, and, and that's based on science. But what we've seen is that these these flip-flops that have gone back and forth about well, if you're vaccinated. Now you don't need to wear a mask. No, if you're vaccinated, you do, do, do need to get a mask. And we're seeing this now play out where the scientific community can't even reach an agreement. The most recent example of that is these booster shots. The If you haven't been following us, the, the Center for Disease Control, their advisory panel came out and they, they said that, OK, unless you are, you know, above the age of 65, you don't need an, or you know, immune compromised. You you don't need to get a booster shot. Okay, um, the CDC chief overruled the agency's advisors and said, you know, no, I mean, here's what we need to do. If you're in a situation where um, you, even if you're below that particular age, healthcare workers, teachers, other workers at risk, you should get a booster shot. And, and she overruled her own advisory panel. Now, I don't know if the head of the CDC is right. I don't know if the advisory panel is right. But this is what happens where people say, well, follow the science. But we don't know definitively what the science says. I'm not anti-booster shot. I intend to get a booster shot as soon as... I, I'm eligible. I'm not going to push needier people out of line for me to get one. But, but again, this is one of the problems where we say follow the science, but it is unclear what the science indicates. And I think the CDC has certainly contributed a lot to this problem over the course of the last year and a half by issuing recommendations that aren't necessarily based on the science or isn't necessarily based on It might be based on one study, but not taking into account other studies. And the more you get these mixed messages out there, the more it fuels people who are reluctant to get vaccinated or reluctant to get the booster shots, which to me, it's always been maybe you should wait in making a decision until you really do have a consensus of scientific opinion. Because right now, the CDC head is kind of she's in one direction. CDC experts are in another direction. The FDA is in a different direction and Joe Biden is in a different direction. So who do you end up listening to? It's a problem. Back with more in just a minute.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Is age really just a number? There are, by my count, Five members of the U.S. Senate currently who are over 80 years old. There are another 23 senators who are in their 70s. The average age of a U.S. senator is 64.3 years. Of the five senators who are in their 80s, Diane Feinstein from California, she's 88 years old. And she is undecided as to whether or not she is going to run for a next, another six-year term. Richard Shelby, who is a long-serving senator from Alabama, he is 87. He's announced that he's going to retire at the end of his term next year. So he's going to be retiring. James Imhoff, who is um, 86, he was just reelected. He's announced that he's not going to run for another term when his, his current term expires in, in six years. But he's gonna plans to serve until, you know, well into his nineties. Patrick Leahy, who is Senator from Vermont, he's 81 years old. 81 years old. He was first elected to the U.S. Senate. In 1974, when Gerald Ford was the president, um, he, he's the last remaining what they call Watergate baby who, who's in the U.S. Senate, but he's been there since 1974. And he, he's up for re-election next year, and he's sending signals that he intends to run for reelection next year, which would mean if he served out his complete term, he would be 89 or, or 90 if he in fact were reelected. Now, I bring this up because there's, there's another, member of the octogenarian club his name is charles grassley who is a republican from iowa um grassley has announced today that he is going to run for re-election wants to run for another six-year term all right grassley is 88 years old he's three months younger than diane feinstein if Charles Grassley from Iowa were reelected, that would mean, and he served out his full term, he would be 95, ni- 95 years old or so. I'd have to go back and look exactly when his birthday is. But he'd probably be, be like 95 years old. Now, the Republicans in Iowa are very, very thrilled that, that Chuck Grassley is going to run for reelection because um, right now there's, there's next year is going to be just an absolute and total you know, open brawl to see who takes control of the Senate. Right now, as I think everybody knows, there's 50 Republicans, there's 50 Democrats, or independents that caucus with the Democrats. And so whenever you have the ties, the vice president breaks that. Well, you know, Two two votes one way or the other. That's why there's such interest in Wisconsin, because Ron Johnson, if he runs for election, he will be running as Republican in a state that went for Joe Biden two years ago. So it, it's going to be a, just an absolute and total political dogfight for for any in any race. And when you have a long-term incumbent like a Charles Grassley, obviously that's a situation where the Iowa Republicans and the Republican Senatorial Committee is thrilled to see Grassley run again because it's not an open seat. And as the incumbent, he has all those advantages. Like I say, Dianne Feinstein, who's a liberal Democrat from California, she's on the fence as to whether she's going to run again. Pat Leahy, who is an extremely, um, liberal senator from Vermont, he's, he's planning to run again. And like I say, if he serves, he would almost be 90. But in the case of Grassley, um, it's a situation where, you know, he'd be in his mid-90s if he served out his term. Now I I do not mean to be ageist. I I am not. And and believe me, I understand I'm I'm closer to, you know, 85 than I am to 35. <laughs> okay, so so these things kind of always weigh on on my mind. But at the same time, while I'm in I think reasonably good. I'm actually in pretty good shape for, you know, as far as life, life's been pretty good to me as far as health and things like that. But I, at the same time, I went to the eye doctor the other day. I don't see right now as well as I saw My My eyes aren't as good as they were you know, 30 years ago. That's just the reality. My reflexes aren't as good as they were 30 years ago. I like to think my mind is as sharp as it was, but you know, every once in a while you kind of forget these things or, or you have those like brain freezes and stuff like that. And my guess is it's going to get worse, not better as you end up, you know, getting older. I admit there's more aches and pains. It takes me longer to recover from You know, walking 18 holes of golf. I'm still able to walk 18 holes of golf with no problems, but it takes a little bit longer to recover. In any event, we all feel the effects of aging. That's just kind of the reality. Now, the Iowa voters right now are going to get to decide whether, you know, Chuck Grassley is, is too old to run again. And my guess is typically voters don't seem to care about this when given the choices. But I want to talk about the big picture. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Just in theory, without talking about, you know, what you need to do to put this into effect, I mean, should there be age limits on serving in public office? Should there be age limits? Because the the truth of the matter is, we know Joe Biden is the president of the United States. I didn't want to make this about Biden. Biden is seventy eight years old. Biden is clearly not as vibrant at seventy eight as he was. At thirty-eight or forty-eight, now he's also gained a lot of experience during those times, and maybe you can say the increased experience you get makes up for maybe some of the deterioration that you have. But and I don't mean to suggest that Biden's not up to the job. That's a whole different conversation. But you know, you have you have all these U.S. senators who have amassed huge political war chests, who are way, way, way beyond what would be normal retirement age, who refuse to leave and because of the advantages of incumbency, are, are most likely to, to cruise to reelection, right? We have companies that put in age limits. Lots of law firms say 65, 67, 70 years old, you're, you're out. Got to make room for the newer breed of people. Um, that, that's the rule. Lots of major companies have rules saying, hey, at the age of 70, if you're the CEO or 65, you got to be gone. All right, should we have rules like that for politicians? And my answer would be, I think if we could figure out a way to do it, yeah. I don't, I don't know what that age is. I don't know if it's 70 or 75 or 80. But when I hear people who are 85 and 88 and 89 years old talking about running for another six-year term, I'm thinking, really? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. age limits. What do you think? This is
0: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855 which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, there should absolutely be an age limit for members of Congress and the President. The Founding Fathers put it in the Constitution that there was a minimum age requirement. I think there should also be a maximum age requirement. I don't think the Founding Fathers envisioned people would spend their entire careers in the House or in the Senate. You know, that raises an interesting point because... Uh, in, in we we when we were on our trip to France a week and a half ago, you know, they were talking about the the life expectancy of of the kings of France. You know, back in the the 16 and the 1700s and the 1800s. I, I mean, I'd have to check, but the average life expectancy what 35, 40 years, maybe 45 years. I mean, because we didn't have the medical advances, it was just just a different life. Yeah, I, I am positive that there's no way. In the the mid-1700s, our our founding fathers anticipated that you would have this many people who would be in their upper 80s who would be still serving in office and, and wanting to continue. And I, I firmly believe, you know, that maybe if they did, if if this had been a thing, there might have been upper age limits. Now, a number of people, or at least a couple of people, are texting and saying, well, Jeff, we we appreciate that this is an issue, but we should leave it up to the voters. It, it should all be about, if you had, if you had um, age limits on this, that, that if, the voter should be able to decide. Well, the problem with that is the way our system is set up, and and I apply this to Republicans and Democrats, this is not a, this is a bipartisan critique. There is such an incredible value to incumbency that, you know, if you've been there forever, you've been able to raise just a ton of money. It's in many cases, you're, you're coming from a state that's Okay, let, let's face it. Dianne Feinstein. All right, California is not going to go Republican. A Republican's not going to win that seat. Um, Leahy in Vermont. Okay, it's an extremely liberal state. A Democrat's not going to win that state. A Republican's not going to win that state. So it, it's very, very difficult to get a challenger that's going to come forward and take them on. And, and candidates are reluctant to challenge other people in their own party. So you, you've got this this system that pretty much guarantees that once people come in, they're, they're able to stay for... Or as long as they want. And again, I would argue, I don't think the Founding Fathers ever envisioned that you'd have an average age in the U.S. Senate of 64 and you'd have almost 30 that are 70 years or, or older. 855-616-1620. Um, let's talk to Craig at Horicon. Hi, Craig, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, what do you think?
4: Okay, um, I'm not so... Uh, I'm not with the with you on the age limit i would love to see term limits and I, i'm thinking uh all three branches uh give them a six-year term that way you you eliminate the lame duck politician uh you limit a lot of spending on on voting and then but you still split it up uh you know everyone has a six year term but still have it split up to where every two years voters can decide uh whether goes uh Republican, Democrat, Independent, um, and, and then also reduce uh, so, some of the benefits, uh, retirement benefits that they get. But, but, again, all three branches are supposed to represent uh, a segment of, of their population or, you know, with, with the judges, you know, the, the nation. Um, if everyone just had a six-year term, we could put in who best represents us. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, someone that's been in there since 74 has no idea what's happening to him.
2: Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for the the call, Craig. I appreciate it. Okay, here's my issue. I I think six years is way too short because it takes – I think it, it takes a while, there's a learning curve that's out there. And I think if you said, okay, your term limit, you can only run once. I don't think that gives people enough time to actually like learn the job. And there is there is certainly a value to experience. So I think that that's, that's way too young. You know, you make an interesting point though, about judges and this is, you know, the federal appointments of judges for life. I'm sorry. I have friends who are federal judges and I've known lots of federal judges I respect. That, that's, to me, that's crazy as well. Like I say, lots of law firms, maybe not all, but lots of the big law firms, they, they tell partners, producing partners, you got to start phasing out at 65 or, or by 68 or 70, you're essentially in emeritus status. Um, we, we don't make the federal judiciary do it. So you have some of these people who, who cling even though there might be just brilliant people, but they're they're starting to slow down. The, The big issue now going on in the Supreme Court is Stephen Breyer who is um 83 years old. He's one of the right now if you wanted to look at a conservative liberal split I think it would be 6-3 conservatives. What's happening is he's under a lot of pressure to retire. He's been on the bench since uh, 1994. So what is that 27 years he was appointed by Bill Clinton and and he's 83 years old and the concern that the Democrats have is that they may very well lose control of the US Senate in the next election. And at that point in time, it becomes much more difficult to confirm a, a new justice, at least in the next couple of years, pending the presidential race. And so there's a lot of pressure on Breyer to retire. Well, Breyer so far is resisting this. He says, look, I, I don't intend to die on the bench, but I'm not ready to go yet. And I, I do think that raises an interesting issue. And, and would our founding fathers really have gone for lifetime appointments If they would have understood that you know people were going to live into their 80s and and live into their 90s, and and I think that they might have rethought that because again, you've got if you've got minimum age requirements, don't you need to have maximum age requirements? And I I understand maybe you could accomplish this with term limits. I don't. I have a problem with that because right, let's take a U.S. senator three terms that that's 18 years. Well, that's you know that's not saying that that the that the person is necessarily ineffective. And again, I don't mean to be ageist, and I fully acknowledge, like I say, I'm closer to 85 than I am to 35. Yeah, that's the way it kind of works. But at the same time, you know, 88 years old, running for re-election, Republican or Democrat, 82 years old, running for re-election. At some point in time, if, if they won't leave, maybe we just need some rules that suggest that, OK, you, you got to leave and, you know, give your money to somebody else and clear the decks and let's have somebody be elected. A couple of texters are saying, Jeff, did you watch any of the hearings on, on the big tech issues that were going on and you know you you see some of particularly some of the older senators who it was very very clear that they were kind of lost as to the operation of of a lot of the newest stuff we all try our best to be current but I'm still at a at a point where when I have one of these things that I can't quite figure out on the phone I'm either going to our IT professional or maybe I'm going to my wife's grandkids because they're the ones that can help me figure out how you change this setting on the phone back with more in just a minute
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: School year is officially underway, and all kids deserve a safe a safe space to reach age-appropriate milestones and overcome developmental challenges. Please join WTMJ's Gene Miller all month to help raise money for Penfield Children's Center in Milwaukee. To learn more about how you can help and about the mission of Penfield Children's Center, go to WTMJ.com. WTMJ Cares is sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. One call, that's all. All right, I've been wanting to talk about this all week because I, I, I think I understand where some people are coming from on this, but I think it's it's an overly simplistic explanation. I have always been, and I've done a radio show at WTMJ for twenty three years, twenty six years, full or part time in in this market. So I, I I understand what what gets covered, and I and and it's it's interesting to me in the media that. The media decides what's going to be a story and and what's not, because if something doesn't get reported um, or doesn't get highlighted, even though people might care about it, you you can't care if you don't know about it. So it's always interesting to me to see what what is going to take off. And and you'll have you know, you'll, you'll have stories every once in a while that just be they just blow up and they become not just a local story, they become a a national story, they become an international story, and you always wonder, what it was about, you know, this particular story that caused it to blow up in that particular fashion. Is it particularly unique? You know, what, what exactly is, is going on? And I've seen a number of those over time. I remember we had one summer years and years ago. It was the summer of the shark attack. And you, and, and there, there had been a couple of shark attacks and there really hadn't been that many, but there were a couple. And so, I mean, every time you turned on the television, every time you turned on the radio, every time you picked up a newspaper, it was a different story about like a shark attack and, and th- th- we always have shark attacks, you know, and it was what's, okay, what, what had happened this summer that, that suddenly, you know, brought this to the forefront. And, and I was never able to come up with a good explanation other than the fact that this is what the media decided to blow up. So the, the latest example of that is this Gabby Petito case. She, of course, is the young woman from Florida. Who, together with her boyfriend slash fiance, whatever his name is, Brian Laundry, they, they go on they go on a van trip. And it's like a four-month van trip, and apparently it is a dysfunctional relationship. You know, they're they're in this van, and she's got some mental health issues, and it sounds like he's got some mental health issues. And there's nine one one gets called from time to time, and he says she slapped her, and you know that, that all these reports of of a, of a toxic relationship. And then what happens is he shows up back at his parents' house in Florida, and she's not there. You know, she, she's gone and now we, we know apparently based on the reports that they, they found her body out in Wyoming and the coroner says it appears to be a homicide, which means like an unnatural death. You know, he's, he's back in Florida and he lawyers up and he refuses to cooperate with the, the police and now, now he's gone. And this, this story, I mean it really is. I mean there's helicopters over everybody's house. The the other day there's like split screen coverage as authorities are executing a search warrant at his parents' house where he lived and there's all this searching of some swamp or something not that far from where he is. But it, it's all these different stories and and this this particular disappearance was was the highlight. And I mean it's was just getting I mean almost 24/7 type of coverage. What are the latest developments? Well, the reality in this country is that people go missing all the time. It, it just, kids go missing, adults go, young adults go missing, middle-aged people get miss, go missing, older adults go, go missing as well. I mean, this, this is something that happens. Um, murders. There, you know, murders occur at an alarming rate, and in many cases, those murders aren't solved. In, in Milwaukee, right now, I think this year the the homicide clearance is around thirty five percent, something like that. But 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 there's always these situations where you know you you have somebody that's been killed or somebody that's disappeared, and it, it's not it's not on CNN twenty four seven. It's not it's not covered. On the national news, it's just, okay, well, well, somebody went missing. So the question is, why, why do some cases attract attention and others don't? You know, one of the real high profile missing cases from years ago involved an attractive young white woman, Natalie Holloway. Remember, she was, um, she was in one of the Caribbean islands and she went missing. And this was, this was something you still see stories about, you know, what happened to Natalie Holloway. In this particular case, this young woman, um, you know, who now met an untimely and unfortunate demise that Gabby Petito, the nation appears transfixed on, on her disappearance. And then, you know, where's, where's the fiance? Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he running? We you know what, what happened? And there's this incredible interest and thirst. There's a number of commentators who are saying, you know, this just demonstrates what they call the missing white woman syndrome that if this were a person of color, for example, it it would not get anywhere near the attention that th- this case has got. And then they point to examples where there's you know, other, for example, people of color who've gone missing. Like I say, unfortunately, people go missing every day in this country and, and you don't hear about them. Maybe there's a little story in the local newspaper, maybe, but it's certainly not making the headlines of of CNN. So the argument is, okay, we only care about missing white women. If she wasn't an attractive young white woman, nobody would care about this. I think it's more complicated than that. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Why do you think this disappearance is getting so much attention, way more attention and way more coverage than most disappearing, missing person, unsolved murder cases get? What is it about this case that has so riveted this country in the last, I, I don't know, over the last couple weeks, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you are one of those people, and there's nothing wrong with admitting this, if you're one of those people who's just been fascinated by this, who's riveted by the coverage, reads all the stories, what is it about this case that's attracted your attention? Is it simply, okay, this is an attractive young white woman that's gone missing, or it is it a more complex answer than that? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a minute.
1: Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, so why is this case getting all the attention when, again, people go missing all the time. Now, some people would say the Gabby Petito case is getting all this case because she's an attractive white woman. And if she wasn't, it wouldn't be getting as much attention. I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. Let's start with Maggie in Milwaukee. Hi, Maggie. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. OK, why are people so fascinated with this?
0: Well, I think, I'm glad you brought up the point about this missing white woman syndrome, but I feel like half of that argument is being left out. And it's not just that she's an attractive white woman. There's almost always, in these cases that go viral, I guess, so to speak, Mm -hmm. there's always this sort of lover interest, whether it's a fiancé, boyfriend. It's less about the woman, and it's about this um, messy relationship, sometimes abusive. I'm not speaking on the Gabby Petito case, because I don't know honestly much about it specifically. But there's always some sort of messiness in these relationships. And it becomes less about the woman and more about this violent man. And that's, I think, what you can see on TikTok and Mm -hmm. these young kids who get really interested in this situation because it's the young kids who make it viral. Yeah. They're interested in it because they want to know about the specifics of the violence.
2: Well, right. And I, I think it's a couple other things as well. First of all, I think a lot of times it's the parents that that drive this. You know, her parents have been very very available to the media you know they've been they've been pushing the, the story asking for the public for help and, and so i, I think yeah. you know that that's one thing when when you have people that are accessible to the media and, and are out there pushing it, it it makes it it makes it easier for this to be covered then you've got the, the 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 fiance, the boyfriend's parents who you know kind of you know clammed up so that's it i think the other thing when you were talking about going viral it, it, it is kind of social media she was very, yeah. very active on social media. She had a whole bunch of followers, so it just kind of springboards. People were following her travels and yep. stuff, and now it's what happened to her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no thanks, thanks for calling. I appreciate. It. Which, which isn't to say. I mean, I don't know about the missing white woman syndrome. If she, if if she was an unattractive white woman, and I'm not sure it would have gotten all the coverage it, that it that it got as well. I just, I always try to put my hands on on what 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 it is it is that causes this stuff to go viral a number of people are also making the point that this is it 's a weird story you know i mean it 's just weird on on so many levels the it 's not just the disappearance but it 's the boyfriend or fiance or whatever he was you know' they 're on this they're they 're on this kind of the, the van trip for several months and he comes back without her and now he 's disappeared it, it's it 's got all the it's got all the attributes of, of a made for motion pictures movie. And I think people are also now kind of fascinated because you, you want to find out what the next development is. It's, it's weirder than just the, okay, the person is gone because there's this backstory, there's this narrative and there's always some other development, which is, you know, driving it along. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to, uh, Jason. Hi, Jason. You're on WTMJ.
3: Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, First of all, this is my opinion.
2: Sure.
3: I, I didn't find her attractive. Um, I don't care her color. What caught me in the story, though, was before they found her body, she was on a, uh, the day show, and uh, they had that camera from the cop talking to her mm-hmm. when they had the argument. And, and that's what caught me into this. And I'm like, oh, okay, now she's missing... So it was the video camera from the officer talking to her in the back seat. I don't know if you saw that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I saw some of the interaction. Yeah.
3: That, yep. And then she said, "Well, we got an argument, and they gave him a little space or something." And then I listened to the story, and then I found out, you know, he left to Florida, and then she was gone, and they found her. That's how it caught me.
2: So mm-hmm. yeah, no, thanks. For, I mean,
3: I, I, no. it has nothing not do with
2: it. Okay, no thanks. I mean, it 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 is. It's got all. Well, here's a texture that makes an interesting point, Jeff. I think it's because people are drawn to the real crime aspect of the drama. Social media and the flood of podcasts and documentaries has caused a complete and total fascination with crime. And when people are invested in something, it it ends up making money. Well, the I mean, I mean, think about. There is an element of truth to that. I mean, think about all the true crime podcasts that are out there and all the documentaries that are out there examining stories. I mean, you've got Okay, making of a murderer—the the Stephen Avery thing, which is a documentary only in the broadest sense of the term. But but again, people are fascinated by these things, and in this particular case, it was a situation that was playing out again in in real time. Okay, what's going to be the next development? Where is she? Where is the where is the boyfriend? You know, what's ended up happening to him? You know, when you and, and I, I also confess that there's all these sort of weird elements of this. I mean, you go on, you, you go. On on a, a road trip with your girlfriend, fiance, or whatever, you come back by yourself, and you're not telling anybody what ended up happening to her. Well, we know what happened to her, and I think we can make a pretty good guess of, of who was responsible for this. Now, the and, and there's also been a development of a, of the day. There's been something that's moved the narrative along, as opposed to okay, the guy is just holed up in his parents' bedroom, and the bedroom in his, his bedroom in his parents' house. Now he's gone too, and and has he has he run? Did he? you know, take his own life, what what exactly is going on? And so there's always something that, again, keeps people interested. Is the fact that she was an attractive woman, is that, and some and, and I think that's a fair description, but is, is that something that I think partly gets the attention? Well, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe it does, but I don't think that explains this fully. Just every once in a while, you get these cases that just capture everybody's attention. And I know that's frustrating for family members of uh, victims who, who've disappeared who you can't get the attention to but i think it's a much more complicated thing than just saying oh she's an attractive white woman woman that's why she's getting the attention in this case there's a lot more than that going on and i have no clue as to how this is going to end which is one of the reasons why i think people continue to pay attention
1: live from the annex wealth management studios at historic radio city this is the jeff Wagner
2: Show. And now, James, Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Fun show today. I've enjoyed all the input and the subjects. We'll try to keep it going for another hour or so. Pop Culture Corner coming up at uh, the bottom of the hour, and it's going to be literally and figuratively a very fun one this week. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. All right. If you're a regular listener of this program, I disclose that uh, last sometime last November, I, I I came down with COVID nineteen, and my wife came down with it at the same time. We were very, very fortunate. Knock on wood, mild, mild cases. As a matter of fact, I, I, I would probably have not even gone in and gotten tested, but for the fact that I ran a fever, and my wife said, "Go in, you'll know, get get tested." And it was a fever for one day, and then it, it let up, and it was. I, I would tell you the symptoms were like a very very mild cold, but I, I tested positive for COVID, and and she also tested positive for COVID. I don't think she minds me disclosing that, but we were very fortunate, mild cases. You know, we we did the quarantine and stuff. I I worked from home. They brought me the the kit, and so I don't think anybody even knew that I was was sick really, because I was broadcasting from home and stuff. But it it all it all worked out very very well. I don't know how I got it. I mean, I, my, we, we kind of kid each other. I say that, I say to my wife, Fran, I said, you must have gotten, you must have been around somebody that got it and gave it to me. And she says, no, no, you, you, you got it and you gave it to me. I, I don't know where we got it. I, I, I just, I, I don't. There was, you know, I, I know that there was one person in our workplace and we, we were largely closed up. I knew there was one person in our workplace, we found out, you know, tested positive for COVID. But I don't think I was around that person very close. So I, I mean, I have no idea. I, I can't, it just doesn't matter. I, it didn't matter. I, I don't know and, and trying to figure out, you know, where you might have contracted this. It, it's just, it's kind of, it, it's an endless and almost a pointless sort of thing because you're never going to be able, and I think in most cases, you're never going to be able to tell for, for sure. So I, I just, Don't know where that particular thing occurred. Right, I was thinking about that because, and consider we both consider ourselves to be very, very fortunate. No adverse, no significant adverse reactions at all. So we're we're lucky. But it's like I say, that's one of the reasons why, even though we had COVID and probably have antibodies, we went out and got vaccinated just as soon as we possibly could because you want to be safe. Okay, so there's a story in the Journal Sentinel about a, a couple who live in in Shorewood, and he is an attorney, and apparently what happened is they're, they're mad at Spectrum. Spectrum, of course, that's the former Time Warner Cable. It's the cable company. So here's here's the story. Apparently, they call Spectrum because they need some work done in in August. They need some work done on, on their cable, you know, internet or whatever. You know, you gotta get the cable guy out to, to fix this. And so apparently, you know, what what happens is they they've been very, very careful about COVID and things of the like, but after a visit by the Spectrum Cable Technician, they they both test positive for for COVID a couple of days later. Um Spectrum apparently had, had sent out a, a letter because this particular technician had apparently subsequently had, had tested positive for COVID. I mean, here's the deal. Spectrum says it contacted customers whose homes the technician had visited that day. Um, the, this is what they say. We require our technicians to complete a daily health check before coming to work. The technician in this case reported no symptoms or health concerns the day of the service call. So he felt fine. The technician reported feeling ill the following day and later tested positive for COVID. The company says our technicians are required to wear a mask while in a customer's home unless they are fully vaccinated or otherwise mandated by state or local order. They're also required to wear a mask if a customer requests it. The company doesn't mandate that the technicians be vaccinated. Um, so uh, the the couple says, okay, well, here, here's what happens. The guy, he, he wasn't wearing a mask at, at first, you know, and we gave him a mask, but we don't think he was wearing it this, he, we don't think he was wearing it appropriately and things like that. And it's their theory that this technician um, who was in their house in various rooms fixing the cable or the internet or whatever, he he had COVID, and their theory is that's where they got it from. And so they're 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 upset with Spectrum now. There's no way of knowing for sure that it's this cable technician that that gave him COVID. You just again it, you, you you don't know, but you can understand where the couple's coming from, saying, "Well, okay, here here's the deal." Now, in the, from the perspective of the cable company, though, they're saying, "Well, look." the guy wasn't at least he didn't as far as we know he was he was asymptomatic in the beginning you know he he didn't report any sort of symptoms um, and so, you know, he, he shows up, he's, he's at work. As soon as he started feeling poorly, he immediately disclosed that we had the test and then we reached out to, uh, again, customers whose houses he had been at to say that this is what happened. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is obviously an unfortunate situation and I understand why the, the couple might be upset with with Spectrum. At the same time, Is, is there really anything that a company can do? I mean, for, for example, you know, if you, if you have a, a service call, you know, and the company sends out the technician to do whatever, or, you know, you're interacting, you're going into a store or whatever, you're, you're interacting with, with someone, and if they, in good faith, you know, They're not sick. They're not running a fever. They're not, you know, sore throat or anything like that. You have the interaction and they subsequently start showing symptoms a day or two later. Can you really blame them or can you blame the company? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Or is this just something that unfortunately happens in, in this COVID world? And that, you know, we, we have to realize that unless we're going to, I don't know, lock ourselves in bubbles and not interact with anybody, there is, in fact, a, a chance that, you know, we might get breakthrough cases of this. Or we might get it 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I'm not really sure what, what businesses can do, Um I guess. You can say that they, they encourage employees to get vaccinated, but at the same time, you know, they, they don't mandate them. And if they don't mandate the employee get vaccinated, is it fair to blame them? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment.
1: You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: You know, it's interesting. I I, I um there's a restaurant I, I go to a lot and I know what the practices are. They make all their employees go through like a daily health check. That that's 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 the rules that they have. And if anybody uh, and, and anybody who is either exposed to people who have COVID or comes down with COVID, they're, they're supposed to immediately report it. And if you have a temper, you know, they, they check you. If, they, if you have a temperature, you know, do you have any symptoms sore throat, you know, whatever. And, and then they act accordingly. There have been, I know, a handful of instances, this hasn't happened to me, but where, you know, employees at the restaurant have subsequently, you know, ended up testing positive for COVID. In which case, I know this particular restaurant, you know, reaches out, what they do is they then do contact tracing. They figure out, okay, to the best that they can, which of our patrons that you might have had any sort of close contact with these particular employees, and, and then they notify them. And it seems to me that that's probably really all you, you can expect the employer to do. Um, there, there's nothing that's 100% in this world. And, and again, unless there's evidence that the employer – this case you know, spectrum cable, unless there's a case that they, a situation that they knew that the particular employee, the service tech, um, what was sick and they continued to allow him to work, okay, that, that's a different sort of story. But otherwise, if, if you're just asymptomatic, you're not running a fever, you're not, you know, exhibiting any sort of signs that you're, you're sick, ah, I don't know much much more that the company can can do, again, absent some indication that it was there. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I had a Spectrum uh, Tech visit last month. They were very professional and wore the mask properly while inside. I think those infected by service detection, however, deserve an official apology, and I'd give them a year's worth of service and their highest level of offerings in an effort to, you know, make good. Um, You know, Jeff, you mentioned the family was very cautious. I'm guessing they were vaccinated. I'm not sure the story says it, but I assume they are. Maybe they should be mad at the pharmaceutical companies for their failure. Well, again, vaccines aren't perfect either. That's just there there is this kind of reality that's out there that there can, in fact, be, uh, you know, breakthrough, you know, cases uh, about some, Jeff, I believe people are responsible for getting close enough to the technician to get it. These days, I consider everyone to have COVID. I keep my six foot distance. I wear a mask when I am around strangers. Well, I think, you know, that's it, Jeff. I'm getting new carpeting soon and the carpet guy will not disclose if he's vaccinated or not. So I plan to leave my home when he's there and then open all the windows when I, in fact, get home. Well, I, I think, you know that's certainly an option that that people are going to take if they are in fact you know uncomfortable with it. Jeff, in my opinion, here's another text. I think Spectrum did everything they could: wellness checks, informed customers after they found out that he tested positive for COVID. Yeah, I guess, I you know I I look I I understand the frustration, and but you know at at the same time, and I, I think back to again, when I got COVID in last <laughs> last November it's just, at some point in time, it's almost sort of fruitless to say, okay, who who did I get it from? Did I get it from my wife who got it from somebody when she was out? Did, you know, she get it from me because we, you know, we ran into somebody, I, we had like isolated contact, even though we were wearing masks and things. And, and you just never know where, in most cases, you know, you don't know where it was that you, you got it from. I guess in some cases where you have somebody extremely close to you that gets it, You you can figure it out. But I mean, I didn't, I don't blame anybody for me getting COVID. I don't, I don't, my wife doesn't blame anybody except maybe me for us getting COVID. You know, it, it's one of those deals where it's just something that ends up up, up happening. And I guess I make this decision. If I go and take my car in to get serviced, for example, and it turns out that, you know, the service technician that I'm in relatively close contact with, and maybe we're wearing masks, maybe we're not, but if we're having contact and we're in close contact with it, and it turns out subsequently, you know, they end up having COVID but didn't know about it, I'm not going to be mad at the auto dealer. If I go to get my hair cut and the gal that cuts my hair, um, comes into work one day, feels fine, but two days later finds out that she's not feeling well and she calls, I'm not going to be mad at her. I'm just, it's one of those things that's out there. I don't think we need to like put scarlet letters on people and things like that. And I think there's only so much that businesses can in fact do to make sure that their customers aren't exposed. And if again, the business has no way of knowing that the person's sick and the person themselves doesn't know that they are sick, well, at some point in time, it's just I chalk it up to this general concept of, you know, this is life. And sometimes unfortunate things happen.
1: This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ.
2: Right. The big story of this week and then also uh, today, tomorrow and Sunday, it's going to be the Ryder Cup. And, and it's just I think it is impossible to underestimate what a big deal this really is. I've been watching a coverage of it all morning. If, if you're not a golf fan, I, I think maybe you just kind of say, well, what's the big deal? We, we have we have golf tournaments here all the time, and we have big golf tournaments. The Ryder Cup is unlike anything else. It, it's held every two years, and it's a competition between the best United States golfers and the best golfers from Europe, and it's hotly contested. And people come from all over the world to to see this, and it's a big, big deal for Wisconsin because, in this case, you know, Whistling Straits, which is the golf course up in the Kohler area where it's being played, it's it's an international showcase, and it 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 has. I mean, you, you can't find a hotel room anywhere around here um for for this weekend and restaurants if you don't have reservations at restaurants anywhere from like the northern part of Milwaukee County all the way up through Green Bay if you don't have res- reservations for restaurants um for the next couple of days good luck because you're you're probably not going to be able to get them because of the huge attendance and it also has impact moving forward because People want to play golf at famous golf courses. That's just one of the things. Gee, gee, you know, I'd love to go play at, at Pebble Beach. You know, I, I want to go play at the the tournament players course in, in the Jacksonville area. I want to go to Whistling Straits. So people come from all over the country. And actually, sometimes wealthy people will come from all over the world for the opportunity to play at these courses. And so that's why hosting a Ryder Cup event is such a big deal. The other thing is that Ryder Cup events are unlike regular golf tournaments because at regular golf tournaments, you you, you can cheer, but you're supposed to be restrained. You know, you've got the... The little golf clap and and things like that. You're you're not supposed to you're not supposed to shout out. You're not supposed to you know do stuff with the, the, the decorum because this is golf and we're supposed to be very very serious. And this comes from my perspective as somebody who plays a, a lot of golf. I mean, I've I've always thought it's sort of interesting to me that you can have. You know, professional baseball players who have a pitcher throwing a ball at them from 60 feet and the ball's moving at 95 miles an hour. And you can have fans in the stands screaming, Hey, batter, swing, 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 batter. And, and we, we don't think anything about that. But the golfers, the golf ball's not moving. You know, and, but we're, we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to shout. We're not supposed to cheer. We're not supposed to do anything that can possibly distract, you know, the players from, from that. And I've always thought that golf is too stodgy. I thought it'd be more fun. That's why there's a, a golf tournament, they, um, the weekend of the Super Bowl every year, the Phoenix Open. And, and that's different. They, they cheer, they yell, and the players know it's going to be different. The Ryder Cup is like that. The, the atmosphere is actually manic. You know you've got players, and you know, and if it's played in the U.S., you know you've got players that are there, and you've got fans that are dressed in a red, white, and blue, and they're actively cheering, and they're cheering for their team to win the U.S. team, and they're rooting, they're rooting against, you know, the other, the other go- the golfers on the other side, and of course that that's you're not supposed to be doing that when it comes to golf. You're not supposed to be rooting against golfers. Well, heck, you know, when I go to baseball games, I'm rooting for the Brewers, and I'm I'm rooting against the team. Team that the other play, that's you know playing uh, against the Brewers, I, I'm cheering for that. And the thing that is so cool about the Ryder Cup is, to me, it injects this degree of life in, into golf, that golf desperately needs, where people are cheering and they're applauding. And yeah, they're, they're jeering occasionally too. And they're applauding the bad shots when the guy from Europe hits, you know, the duck hook or something. Yeah, they're, they're, they're applauding that because they're rooting for their team to win. It is, I think, so incredibly refreshing. And it's one of the things that makes the Ryder Cup so unique. And it's one of the things that makes it so, so very cool that the Ryder Cup is in southeastern Wisconsin. So even if you're not a golfer, just just go with this and appreciate it because it is a very big deal. And economically, going to be a big deal for the foreseeable future. When we come back, let's find out what Eric and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.